You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, good afternoon. Get started today, because it's getting close to Purim. Okay, this week, besides being the Torah reading of Parshish Tetzavah, which is the actual Torah reading that we read in the Torah, but we know that during the time of uh, around and before Purim and during before Purim and Pesach, there are four extra Torah readings that we read them four times that we take out two Torahs. And why we take out two Torahs is because we read an extra Torah reading. The reason for the taking out the two Torahs, just a technicality, is that we don't want uh, Judaism values, the time of the community, precious, and therefore, when it might take extra time to roll the Torah and therefore keep people waiting, it's called not kavli that tzibur, it's unrespectful to keep people waiting. And that's why whenever we read a different Torah reading, you'll notice we take out two Torahs and a Hanukkah and the Zoshchodesh, we take out three Torahs, like this, it keeps them moving. And you don't sit there, of course, in a place where there's only one Torah, you have to roll the Torah. But in generally, we don't look to roll the Torah in public. We wait, we have everything prepared as it's supposed to. But there's two Torah readings that are read for four parshiyos, four Shabbases. Two weeks ago, we read one, which was at the beginning of Rosh Chodesh Adar, when we blessed the month of Adar, which was to commemorate the, um, the time when the Jewish people contributed a half a coin to the Holy Temple to, to buy the sacrifices and for the sockets that were used. And every Rosh Chodesh Adar, the Jewish people would make a collection of a half a shekel. So that's what we read about in Parshish Kisis in the book of Exodus, the first time God told Moses to collect a half a shekel from all the Jewish people. This week is Parshish Zohar. We'll be reading about the mitzvah to eradicate Amalek. In two weeks' time, we'll be reading Parshish Parah, which is about the red heifer. And we read about that before the Pesach, because in order for a Jew to bring the Paschal offering, they had to be cleansed and they had to be pure and one of the ways of becoming pure was through the um the pastoral offering and I'm sorry through the red heifer and then there is the uh, the final one the fourth one which is the time of when the jewish people would bring uh i'm sorry the mitzvah of hachodesh that god would tell the jewish people that they would have to that the jewish calendar goes according to the jewish month and that was done under rosh chodesh nisan and those are the four special sections this week, as we mentioned, is the one about um, eradicating Amalek. Why do we read it the week before? Um, the week before Purim, and that is because Haman was a descendant of Amalek, and being that Haman was from the leftovers of Amalek during the time of King Shaul, where he was given the commandment as the first king to wipe out Amalek, and he, uh, King Shaul felt that he had a better method of allowing the animals to stay on. And they should be brought as sacrifices, and that's why he actually lost the opportunity to have to be the king again. His descendant, Mordechai, had to finish off the job in wiping off Haman, who came from Agog, who was the general, the king then of Amalek. But before Purim, we read about this mitzvah because Haman came from Amalek, and we have the obligation. This obligation is not just a mitzvah that we read once a year, but it is also read in the six remembrances every single day after. Davening, we talk about remember what Amalek did to you and how you have to eradicate that. In this week's Torah reading as well, just a little side note about the Torah reading as well, it is the only Torah reading from Moshe's birth that Moshe's name is not mentioned. It happens to be that it always comes out in the week of Moshe's passing, which we spoke about last week, about the Moshe's passing and birth, and that's the Atta Tetzave knew Moshe, God commanded him to bring, the, uh, tell them about the olive oil that was brought to the Holy Temple. But Moshe's name is not mentioned because when God wanted to wipe out the Jewish people after the sin of the golden calf, Moses said, if you're going to do that, then take me out of your book. Meaning that when a tzaddik says something, even as a threat, if you want to call it, it has to be done. And therefore, God took him out of one section, but which section? One of the only sections in the Torah which are, are said to Moshe indirect. That means most of the Torah it says, God said to Moses saying, all in third person. Mm -hmm. This week's Torah reading begins, and you Moses be the one to bring the olive oil, even though he wasn't the one to light the menorah, it was Aaron. But that's a separate discussion on its own, but that's interesting to note about this week's Torah reading. A rabbi talks about once a fellow calls him up, very dramatic call about this 
couple who's on their honeymoon. And while they're on the honeymoon, the young man calls up the rabbi and says, Rabbi, I don't know what to do. I'm starting to have doubts. I think I went into this all too quick. Should I just stop the honeymoon, go home and call it quits and finish? What do I do? I have another few days, few weeks, whatever it may be, to our trip here in North Africa, wherever they went. What am I to do? And these rabbis quiet. And the guy continues saying, maybe this is not what I want in life. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And asking all the maybes and the questions and the doubt starts coming to him. And he says, maybe I'm just thinking all about myself. I had some time to think about it. Maybe I'll come back to Israel, come back to wherever I live, whatever it may be. And we'll figure it out. And finally, the rabbi tells him, no. You paid for the trip. Finish the trip. And everything will work out. You come back. So he turns to the rabbi and he says, so do you mean that what my doubts and my questions are just nonsense? And the rabbi says, yeah, probably so. Any doubt is usually not rational and is usually nonsense. And it's probably because you're not busy and therefore all of a sudden things are out of the norm and you start thinking about questions and not necessarily are they practical and so on. Bottom line is, they moved back, everything worked out, and everybody got back to life, life moves on, everything worked out. What does this mean? Doubts. Are they true? Are they not true? Are doubts realistic or not realistic? Should we be asking questions? Should we not be asking questions? How does this all work? And what we're going to talk about today is not about doubts in the relationship, but doubts. When people sometimes have doubts about God. Are we allowed to ask questions? Should we be asking questions when our faith is challenged? Should we be asking questions when we start saying, well, things don't seem like working out the way I thought it should be. We are as God in this whole plan. And the question is, am I allowed to ask questions? And of course we know, yes, you're allowed to ask questions. But the question is, what is the question going to do to you? If the question is going to make you stop from what you're doing, then you shouldn't be asking questions. Then that's not a question. We have to also remember, number two, to take into consideration that as brilliant as you may be, or as brilliant as you may think you may be, and have all the questions about how God does things and why things happen and all the wonderful things that you have questions all about, remember that there were greater people before you also had questions. And there were great philosophers and scholars and thinkers who ask the same questions. And guess what? They continue to believe. And if they were able to continue to believe, and they went through troubling times, nothing compared to, of course, nobody's going to say your problem, your difficulty, your challenge. Nobody can underestimate because it's your challenge. But we're not talking about the challenge. We're talking about the questions, mm. the thinking, the doubts. They all had questions. And they made it through. It must be that if they figured it out, and our brilliance, we can figure it out as well. And number three, the most important thing is keep on learning. That means if you have a question, if you have a doubt, maybe you haven't learned enough. Maybe you need to keep on thinking. Maybe it's only because of your ignorance or because your lack of knowledge that you came to this question. Ask yourself the question. Have you thoroughly researched it and learned it to its fullest and therefore you're having the question? Or is it because of your lack of knowledge that you have the question? And to be able to understand these three points, number one, you can ask the question, but don't allow it to stop you. Number two, remember that there were greater people that had questions than you. And number three, keep on learning. Let's take it and analyze it from the purview of this week's Torah reading and the parsha that we spoke about, the fight and the war against Amalek. What happened here? If you look, the Jewish people got into many different wars throughout the ages, whether it was the Pelishtim, the Egypts, the Greeks, the Babylonians. You name a country, we probably had to go to war with them, or they were probably persecuting the Jewish people. But there's only one nation that sticks out as a sore thumb in Jewish history, that God commands us, take this nation and eradicate them, don't have anything to do with them. And that is the people of Amalek. The people of Amalek, they're not even around for the past 2,000 years. And even if you would grab Amalek today and you would know who he is, you wouldn't be allowed to kill him 
because it only was in the time of the Sanhedrin, the Holy Temple, and throughout to be in the other type of jurisdictions. But still in all, it's something which became part of our prayers, and as we mentioned, this week's Shabbos is, re- is recognized, and even a biblical obligation, to remember what Amalek did to us. Forget about Amalek, move on. They were 2,000 years ago in history, why do you keep on harping about it? To the extent that the Torah tells us, eradicate, eradicate every single remembrance of Amalek. By the way, the reason why we make that noise when Haman's name is mentioned during the story of the Megillah is because of part of this obligation to eradicate the name of Amalek so we drown out Haman who was a descendant of Amalek. Even more so, aren't we all about forgiveness? Isn't the Jewish people something that we forgive? That we know it says in the Tillim, we don't desire in the death of the evil but we want them to return and recognize the ways of God? Isn't every human being created in the image of Hashem? Then all of a sudden now we're saying, take these people, wipe them out, eradicate them, and it's a continuous mitzvah until today. One of the six remembrances. To the extent, as we mentioned, this week's Shabbos is called Parsha Zachar, the Shabbos to remember to destroy Amalek. And even if I feel that I want to destroy the entire Amalek and we make the noise by Haman's name, what purpose is it? So let's take even what happened in historically about Amalek. You can think that this was a, probably a nation that continued to persecute the Jewish people for so many years that God says you've got to eradicate them so, for so much. If we look at what Amalek did, it was just a month after the Jewish people left Egypt. The world was still in shock and awe of what happened when the Jewish people left Egypt. The Jewish people across the Red Sea, they come out on the other side, they're getting ready to get the Torah. And all of a sudden, there's a nation that comes out, a nation who actually is a cousin of ours. Amalek was a grandson of Asaph, who was the brother of Yaakov. So Amalek is our second cousin, if you want to call it. And they all of a sudden start to act up against the Jewish people. And they start to make a war against the Jewish people, which at that point in time, God tells Moses to pick Yoshua, to take great men and to wage war against Amalek. Now what happens here? After we win the war against Amalek, Moshe holds his hands high in the sky, Yeshua, uh, Aaron on one side, Hur on the other side, and eventually the Jewish people overcome them, overpower them, wipe them out, and we're done. But in the book of Deuteronomy, God reminds the Jewish people, Moshe tells the Jewish people, remember what Amalek did to you when you came out of Egypt. They tried cooling you in your way. They, while you were tired and you did not know God, they came to try to destroy you. Don't forget. Maimonides, when he codifies Jewish law, takes this commandment and says it's an obligation to hate Amalek with a passion in every single time and in every single generation. We should never forget what they've done and hate them with a passion. Not only that, to the extent that we shouldn't forget about hating and eradicating them, as we mentioned, it is part of the six remembrances that we say every single day after davening. It is a Shabbos dedicated to one Shabbos of the six of these 52 weeks. We dedicate to eradicating Amalek. The Chassam Sofer says, one of the great commentators that lived about 200 years ago explained, Rabbi Moshe Sofer lives in Hungary. He has said, one of the reasons why we read Amalek every year is that it shouldn't go by 12 months and you shouldn't forget about Amalek. Don't forget what they did. Eradicate them. Remember to eradicate them. Don't go 12 months without thinking about them. And even to the extent when it comes a leap year, so you have an extra month, so the Adar goes on, so he explains, you have in Parshish Kisait, and we read it in the book of Deuteronomy, so therefore you still have it within the 12 months. What is it in Amalek that all of a sudden became this power that we start, that we can't let go of? Egypt we let go of. Nebuchadnezzar, Titus, name the enemy. We don't seem to have the same passion and anger against them. Whether it was the Greeks, the Assyrians, the Romans, the Egyptians. All of them that destroyed so many different things. And as we mentioned before, Rabbi Akiva mentions, it says in the Mishnah, a person should love every single person because they were created in the image of God. And therefore we are a forgiving nation. What happened to Amalek? Why are we not forgiving about them? We take it even a step further. An interesting thing that it says a few weeks ago, we read that Jethro came to the Jewish people and they met them out in the desert. 
And it said Jethro heard what happened to the Jewish people. It says, what do you mean he heard what happened to the Jewish people? And the Talmud explains that he heard about the war against Amalek, and he heard about the crossing of the sea. What was it all of a sudden that changed his mind about it? He thought the Jewish people, you know, they're so forgiving, they don't have to wage war, things just happen and they just move on. He said, why should I join such a passive nation? But when he heard that the Jewish people were willing to stand up for what they were worth, that they fought against Amalek, they got rid of the Egyptians, he says, I want to join this type of people. But again, the bottom line, our question is, what is it? What is it that the hatred that we have against Amalek, that is so enduring, that for the thousands of years we continue, no matter what happens, even though today that we don't have any remembrance of where Amalek is, because as we know, during the time of the, second temp of the first temple, when the ten tribes were exiled out of the land of Israel by the king Sancherib, he was worried that people might rebel against him. So what did he do? Even though he was a superpower at the time, what he did was he took every single nation and misplaced them. And when you displace people, they don't have the courage to stand up against because they don't know the terrain, they don't know the land, and he displaced all the entire universe. So he took the Egyptians, he put them in Arabia, he put the Arabians and put them someplace else. The same thing goes also, he took with the 10 Jewish tribes that lived in the land of Israel, instead of just dominating over them, he took them out of the land of Israel and he moved them to North Africa. And he took the North Africans and he put them in the land of Israel to the extent they were being uh, attacked by the, by the lions and they, some of them converted because since they didn't want to be attacked. But that's a whole separate story for a different time. But the bottom line is that we don't even know who Amalek is today. So why do we keep on mentioning about this mitzvah? We must say that Amalek by today is dead. So what's the reason of mentioning the mitzvah? And why is it so important that we have a Shabbos that remembers it? And the very fact that all of a sudden this is something, some type of treatment or some type of a disease that the Jewish people just can't get rid of that we're always talking about. And we're going to take, of course, the esoteric approach, which Amalek is more symbolic than something greater than we can ever imagine. But let's first start with the simplistic interpretation, then we'll go more to the esoteric. They actually say a story about a chassid of the Alter Rebbe. His name was Rabbi Yom Kletzke. He was a very passionate individual. Just to give you a little example about this chassid, he was called Rabbi Yom Kletzke. Klutz comes from the word, you ever heard somebody's called a klutz? Why do you call a person a klutz? Klutz means a bean. That means you're a bean. You don't, uh, you don't have any sense in your mind what you're doing and where you're going. So he was called Rabbi Yami Klutzker because what he used to sell was beams. You know, he used to sell wood, forests. And that's what he's called Rabbi Yami Klutzker. He was pretty well-to-do. And he, at the end of each year, he had to make an inventory. And he would write on the bottom of his inventory, Eim Oid Muvadim. There's nothing but God. That was his total sum. What did I make this year? It's all what God decides. And it wasn't something just semantics or just a mantra that he wrote on the bottom. It was a person who passionately felt it that everything that he had in life was just God's gift, and therefore, the bottom line was always Eneid Muvadim. Whatever God, it's all, and not, there's nothing, all the wonderful riches in the world, there's nothing but God. So when he used to come to reading about the portion of Amalek, you were able to see on him like an anger and a passion and an upsetness about these people. He never met them. The Torah says you gotta erase them, you gotta eradicate them. He felt this anger about it. But what was it all about? So the Abarbanel, was a Spanish scholar and a commentator on the Torah explains and gives an interesting and phenomenal lesson that we can learn and understand to the concept of Amalek. If you look when the Torah describes, get rid of Amalek, the Torah just doesn't say, you know the Amalek, you know the story, boom, eradicate them. Every time the Torah mentions them, the Torah describes into nitty-gritty detail what they've done. And the Torah says, you want to know how bad they are? Remember what Amalek did to you on the way, while you were traveling, while you were tired, and you did not know God. What's the purpose of God describing these details? And the reason is because the Torah is coming to tell you the severity of the crime of Amalek. It's coming to tell you that these people of Amalek, they have such a hatred for the Jewish people, that there's no way that you can ever explain it. There's nothing that you can even deal with them. You can't even have a dialogue with them. It's not even about explaining or having some type of discussion and saying, okay, we'll come to some type of peace treaty. These are people, these are individuals that you need to eradicate without any discussion whatsoever. Why? For the following reason. Generally, wars happen for three reasons. Number one, territorial disputes. 
Countries want to annex other lands, as you can see what's going on now in the world. Russia wants to take Ukraine or annex parts of Ukraine, so therefore they created a war. That's what number one type of war happens. Most wars happen because people want to take over territory. Whether it was Hitler that wanted to take over most of the other territories, that's where he went into Europe, Poland, or whatever it may be, Napoleon. Go pick any war you want. Usually it's either about territory. Number two, why people also do wars, why countries do wars, is to show their strength, their power. The former USSR, Stalin wanted to show his Soviet power, started overcoming, killing people by millions to be able to take them over, to be able to wipe it out and to show his strength. Number three, which thank God doesn't happen today too often, but used to happen, which was over religion. When there's a following, when a country believes in a certain religion or doctrine and wants to force all the people in the country to follow such a doctrine or take over the doctrine, for example, the Romans or the Catholics, mm -hmm. and they believe that they, or the Crusaders, that they want to take over places, the Spanish, the same thing, they were people who used their influence and power to be able to overcome and to uh, use and to take over countries to, take, to influence them to become Catholicism and so on and so forth. The difference between all these different types of, whether they're valid reasons or not, war is never a valid reason, but at least there's a rationale. Let's put it that way. Amalek, on the other hand, had zero of these reasons. No rationale with why they attacked the Jewish people. Amalek, the Jewish people never walked into their territory. The Jewish people were traveling in the desert and had nothing to do with the Amalekites. So it can't be a territorial war. The Amalek, the Jewish people, were traveling, they were worn out. It wasn't about power. They just were enslaved for 210 years in Egypt. They're not fighting wars with anybody right now. What are you worried about? Back off. What are you showing your strength? On a people who are worn out from just 210 years of slave labor? Also, there's no reason for you to show it. Religion? As it says in the Pasuk, they still did not know God. The Torah hasn't yet been given to them. They haven't yet been established as a Jewish faith. So why in the world are you waging war against them? It is only out of pure, simple hatred that they had for the Jewish people. Out of a hatred that they hated the Jews, that was the only reason why they did it. Think about it. They used to say there was once the scorpion that wanted to get across the river. But the scorpion doesn't know how to swim. So what did it do? It saw a turtle. I was going across, so jumped on the back of the turtle and started making its way across the, the, uh, the river. So the turtle turns to the scorpion and says, why should I take you? You're going to sting me and kill me. Mm -hmm. The scorpion says, why should, I, why should I kill you? If I want to make it across the other side of the river, I'm not going to kill you. So the turtle thought about it and says, yeah, it makes sense. So the turtle swam across the river as they're about to get to the dry land. The scorpion stings him, kills the turtle. Mm -hmm. He yells while he's in his last breath, he yells at the scorpion and says, what's this all about? He says, that's just the way I live. Yeah. Must somebody say, that's just the Middle East. But <laughs> either way you want it. It's true. Exactly this is the type of hatred that, Napole that, that, the, that, uh, that came to Haman. This is the type of hatred that has Amalek. Think about Haman. Why did Haman want to kill every single Jew in the 127 countries that Achishverosh had? Mordechai upset him. Mordechai didn't bow down to him. Okay, take it out with Mordechai. What did every Jew bother him? A Jew you never met. In 127 countries, he has to wipe them all out. Why? What do they do to you? They're bothering you. They're paying the taxes. They're doing what they have to. But because one Jew didn't bow down to me, I'm going to wipe out all the Jews. It's a hatred which is not rational. It's a hatred that can't be explained. It's a hatred that doesn't make sense. And we have it, unfortunately, in today's day and age. Think about Hitler. The Germans, they're losing the war. The Allies are coming in. What do they do in the last few moments of the war? Send trains to Auschwitz to kill them. Instead of sending more soldiers to the front to fight the Allies, what are they busy killing and exterminating Jews? What did Jews do wrong to you? It's the Allies fighting you. And while the Allies are coming in, they're killing the Jews. Such type of hatred that Hitler... You can't explain it. It's not irrational. It's just pure, simple hatred. Same idea as you take today Iran. Iran is investing in their nuclear powers to be able to kill Israel. What did Israel bother you? They don't even live next to you. They're not even on your border. 
Why do you want to eradicate Israel? What did Israel do wrong to the Iranians? Nothing. Only because they're Jewish people and therefore we want to kill them. This is one of the reasons, if you think about it. The West just doesn't get it. When Israel says we are fighting for survival, we got to get rid of that nuclear power, that uh, the nuclear reactor that Iran has. And say, we'll make it work at a deal, a peace treaty. It's not a rational hatred. Israel is not on their border. Israel is not fighting with them. Never went to war with them. But they still want to eradicate them. This is because we as Western civilization understand that war is usually, there's a reason. There's a reason and a, a cause and an effect. But when dealing with such hatred, with such anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism at the core is not rational. You're Jewish, that's why I hate you. What does it make a difference? Ah, you're sitting and doing things, probably you're, you're productive, you're people that learn it. has nothing to do with anything. This, where does it come from, such type of anti-Semitism? This is exactly what Abarbanel tells us is what Amalek was. The war of Amalek was not because they had some type of reason to hate the Jews. The Jews did nothing to them, not militarily, not religiously, nothing. They decided to unilaterally decide to wage war against the Jewish people. And therefore, what happened? In this case, what does God tell us? This is the type of hatred that has to be eradicated. This is the type of hatred which you cannot go to the table with and say, we're going to have a peace treaty, we're going to have a discussion, we're going to forgive you. You cannot forgive a person who wants to kill you, not because of a reason or a rational. If there's a reason, we can negotiate. Your war, you want one piece, I want another piece, we can throw it and make some type of treaty. A religion, okay, you stay here, I stay there, whatever it may be. But if it's absolutely beyond intellect, if you want to call it, there's no rationale. This is what Amalek is. You got eradicated at the core. There's no way of dealing with it. And the only way we get rid of it is when we follow what God tells us. This is the simplistic way of looking at the mitzvah that God tells us. But then we go into the deeper, more uh, philosophical, but at the same time, valuable lesson that we can learn from this whole episode of Amalek. The whole concept we talk about in general in life, when we come with a challenge, there are two ways how we approach it, or there are two questions that can be asked anytime we face a challenge or a dilemma. If and how. What's the difference between if and how? If is a doubt. How is only, I know I'm going to do it, but I just got to figure out how. In Judaism, not only in Judaism, but in general, in relationships, in a relationship with God, in a relationship with a spouse, the question should never be if. It should only be how. When we have obstacles in life and challenges that we have to come across, the question should never be if I'm going to do it. The question is only, how am I going to get through it? What are, what are my steps going to be? In one of the great uh, proverbs we say, when we talk about the woman of valor, the second verse says, Her husband's trust was in her. What is the greatest thing that a relationship has? It's not if they're going to be there for one another. It's how they're going to be there for one another what they're going to be doing for one another. The botach, the absolute trust in one another, is not about an if. If you have absolute trust and commitment to another person, it's, there's no ifs. There's no ifs and but about it, as they used to say. It's only how am I going to enhance this relationship. And if I come across a challenge, and if I come across to some type of uh, you know, dilemma, I'm going to look, what do I do about it? If you look at the interesting thing that you find, one of the second of the Ten Commandments, God says, do not say God's name in vain. And second of the Ten Commandments, you're not allowed to say God's name in vain, we don't write God's name, we don't publish God's name, there's a lot of different details of what we do to make sure we don't say God's name in vain. And all of a sudden over here, it comes to a story where a man loses trust in his wife, and because of that he accuses her of having a promiscuous affair with somebody else. And all of a sudden, what is God saying the law in the Torah of Sota? 
take my name and erase it in the water and prove to see if the woman was faithful or not. All of a sudden, God is saying, erase my name. It's one of the, one of the Ten Commandments, the Second Commandment. Don't say God's name in vain. I can't even say it in vain. And over here, I'm taking a parchment with God's name, dipping it into water, purposely erasing God's name. What does God say? Erase my name, just that there shouldn't be any doubts. In Hebrew, there's a very famous saying, Ein simcha There is no joy like taking away doubts. You know, imagine you're not feeling well, and you don't know what it is. If it's a this or is it that. You go to the doctor, and he tells you, he takes a culture, and he tells you, you have strep. And you say, yay! What do you mean he has yay? Because now I know it's not something else. Mm -hmm. I listen, you know, once you know what the thing is, you know how to treat it. In Hebrew they say, knowing what the sickness is already halfway to the treatment. But when you're lost and you don't know what it is and you go from doctor to doctor, from day to day, and you say, it's my nose or it's my throat, it was my arm, it's my... You know what it is. You're in misery. Why? Because you're in doubt. Doubt is what destroys a person. Should I go like this? Should I go like that? When a person's in limbo, they don't have the ability to think. That's why it says a person who doesn't have a house is not considered a human being. Why? Because when you don't have a roof over your head, when you don't have the ability to be... You're always in doubt. Where am I going to be tomorrow? What am I going to do today? Mm -hmm. So you don't have that ability to even think consciously. Doubt is one of the things that can destroy a person. Not only a doubt in physical matters, but also doubt in spiritual matters. The word amalek in Hebrew is the same numeric value as the word suffolk. You know, we live in Suffolk County. Suffolk. About doubt. Number 240. It equals 240. What was amalek all about? Amalek was about to put doubt into the Jewish people. Think of it, what they do. The Jewish people just came out of Egypt. Everything's happening to them. The world at large is in awe of the Jewish people. Look at these people, how great they are. God makes the sea split for them in 12 different canals. The water goes up, the Egyptians are drowned. The Egyptians were the superpower in the world. The superpower in the world came to its feet for the Jewish people. The world knew about it without the internet, without WhatsApp, without social media. They knew about the greatness of the Jewish people. And over here comes Amalek and says, Ah, you think you're so great. Mm -hmm. The event of the Kriyas Yamsuf, of the splitting of the sea, eh, that's just a usual earthquake that things happen, and you just so happen to be in the right time. Egypt was anyways going down, and therefore the Jews were able to escape. Don't they think you're so great. Don't think you're so well great. What were they doing? Amalek was about planting doubt in the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. When they had the passion to be ready to get to Torah, he said, ah, you're going through the desert, you think you survived the desert? Fine, you made it out of Egypt, you made it across the sea, but who says you'll even make it to the land of Israel? In the land of Israel, there are seven nations, they're going to fight against you, you probably won't make it. And that's what they did when they waged war against the Jewish people. They knew they weren't going to win. It wasn't about them winning. It was about them showing they are not the greatest. We, I'll we'll even try to fight them. <laughs> and this is where Amali comes in. In fact, if you take the words, it says in the Torah, it says the prophets use the terminology, Rashis Goyim Amalek. The beginning of the nations were Amalek. If you take the first letter, Rash, Gimel, and Ayim, makes the word in Hebrew, Rega. You ever speak to any Israeli, you're having a debate with them, they go, Rega, which means just a moment. Amalek is that, wait a minute. You're getting all excited, you're passionate about what you want to do, about your relationship with God, or whatever it may be, and all of a sudden you have that, just wait a minute. That waiting a minute, that idle time, that trying to cool you off, that cooling down time, that's Amalek. That is exactly what Amalek is all about. Amalek is taking advantage of the Jewish people. When a person gets excited and passionate, he hears a story and he says, you know what, I'm going to go and change the world. I'm going to go and change myself. I'm going to go tomorrow, I'm going to do another mitzvah. And Amalek says, wait a minute, who says you have the money? Who says you have the time? Who says you're able to do it? That is all Amalek. That doubt planting within you, if you can, the if, that's Amalek. You have to remember that any time you start saying, if, I don't know if I can do it, that's Amalek. I don't know how I can do it. That's a different story. You figure out the how. But if you say, if I can do it, that is the Amalek.
And this is what the Torah tells us. That's what has to be eradicated. A person is never allowed to doubt. Ask questions? Yes. But doubt? No. What's the difference? What's the difference between asking questions and doubting? Asking questions means you're figuring out how am I going to do it? I need to learn the protocols. I need to know what to do. I can't just jump into the water if I don't know how to swim. It's not if I know how to swim. I have to know how to swim. How is asking questions. How to get through it. But the moment a person has a doubt, the doubt is what destroys the individual. The doubt doesn't allow a person to go further. The doubt is what causes you to freeze in your relationship with God, in your relationship with other people. The doubt does not allow you to be able to progress and to go further. An unbelievable story comes the story told that once a chassid came to the Kutzke Rebbe. The Kutzke Rebbe was known from his, uh, for his brilliance in being witty and sharp. And he comes to him and he asks him a question and he says, the chassid comes to him and says, I have doubts in my belief in God. I don't know if I believe. I have so many questions, I don't know if I believe. So the Kutzke Rebbe tells him, he says, you know what, go look in that page in the Talmud. There's a Tosos. Tosos was a commentator on the Talmud. And look up that Tosos. Over there you'll find the answer. Oh, great. Doubts in God? Just go look it up in the book. I got the answer. So he goes, he looks up the Talmud. He looks in the Tosos. Doesn't find the answer. He's looking, looking. Maybe he didn't read it right. He reads it once, twice. He asks his friend. Does it talk about doubts in God? It talks about nothing. It talks about a cow goring a, a, a sheep. It doesn't look talk. Goes back to the Rebbe. And he says, I went, I learned it, I don't understand. So he says, what were the last words the toast was finished with? He finishes off, he says, And we got to look into it. I got a question, I don't have the answer. But did toast was finish his commentary there, or he kept on writing more commentary? He kept on writing more pages of commentary the rest of the time. He says, the same way Tosfos was able to continue, even though he had doubts. You can also continue when they have doubts. The same idea is also we have to remember. As many doubts and questions we have, as we mentioned before, we're not the first persons in history to think about God. Newsflash. The Kuzari already spoke about philosophy. Ripsad Yagoim, Maimonides, Nachmanides, the Arizal, the Balshemtov, the Beis Yosef, you name a scholar, they all had questions. And you know what? They had bigger questions than we had. Because they were greater scholars and more brilliant minds. And just because they knew Torah doesn't mean that they forgot about their actual thinking about God. But it didn't stop them. It didn't freeze them in their tracks. Their questions were not kept them frozen. Their questions is what propelled them to learn more. Is what got them to understand about God even greater. Hasidism explains that the word emuna, which means belief in God, comes from the word truth. Because every single Jew sincerely believes in God whether they like it or not. Within every single Jew, there's a pintaliyah, there's a spark of godliness that awakens and inspires the individual. You don't have to go search for it. You don't have to look for it. It's there within you. And the truth is that the only reason why we sometimes ignore it is because we get distracted. And what happens is that sometimes when a person gets under that pressure, they all of a sudden, that great spark comes to reveal it. It comes to be revealed. As the Chassid who once came to the Tzamaq Tzedek and he came to the Tzamaq Tzedek and says, Rebbe, I feel sorry for myself that I have doubts in God. What should I do? And the Tzamaq Tzedek looks at him and says, what's the problem? He says, what do you mean what's the problem? How can a Jew have doubts in his belief in God? Said, as long as you feel that's a problem, you're on the right track. <laughs> the doubt is not the problem. As long as you don't get frozen by it. You recognize, yeah, we have doubts. But what do I do? I move on. You got to keep on trucking. Doubts, questions, we ask questions, but don't doubt. Don't doubt means that it makes you stop and makes you freeze what you're doing. As we see the previous Rebbe writes, the whole concept of Amalek was about to rebel against godliness. But what did Amalek do? Amalek used the terminology that the Torah uses, Asher He wanted to freeze. He wanted to cool, cool you down. As soon as a person got excited about Judaism, 
he threw in a little bit of doubt and said, big deal, who told you to do it? Where does it say it? It doesn't say it clearly. Maybe only the rabbis made it up. And all of a sudden, come with all these different kinds of doubts. And therefore, what's the only way to get rid of doubts? Is to eradicate it. You can't negotiate with doubts. You can't say, okay, doubts. And if today, maybe I'll listen to it, but tomorrow I'll only listen to it partially. The moment you have 1% of doubt in you, it already exacerbates. In order to eliminate doubt, you have to eradicate it completely. A question to understand Torah, to understand things, there's no problem. And this is the way we look at it. If you look at it in the contrast of Moses to all, towards all the other leaders of the Jewish people, Look through the book of Genesis. We have stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, the brothers. You never see once where anybody questions God. We spoke about this once before. Abraham's told to take his son on an altar. He has thrown into fire. He has the biggest troubles in life. Not once does he question God. Isaac is from place to place. Doesn't have children, this and that and the other. Never questions God. God says they do love, fear, all what they want. Jacob chased by his brother Esau, ripped off by his uncle Lavan, his son Joseph goes away, he had plenty to complain about. Not once a complaint. Moses, comes the book of Exodus, mm -hmm. Moses is told by God, go take the Jewish people out of Egypt, comes to Pharaoh, tells them, please, I want to let the Jewish people go. Pharaoh says, no, throws a tantrum, and all of a sudden Moses throws a tantrum to God, why did you send me, why are you doing this? The Jewish people are enslaved. He's the first person to ask God, why? Abraham didn't ask why. Jacob, Isaac didn't ask why. Jacob didn't ask why. And in fact, as we mentioned once before, the Medrash, that, Jake, that Moses was just like Jonah, who, so to speak, ran away from his mission and didn't want to deal with it. He says, listen, if God, if this is the way you do things, find somebody else for the job. But do you ever see Moses being rebuked for his question? On the contrary. God talks to him patiently and says, Moses, this is the way, this is the protocol that's going to happen. Pharaoh's going to get angry, then he's going to be upset, and then the Jewish people are going to leave. Though there are commentaries that say that because Moses didn't believe in the end game, he never got to see the end game, and he never entered the land of Israel, but he only saw the exodus of Egypt. But at the end of the day, he's never rebuked by God for asking questions. God patiently answers him all his questions. And the answer is very simple. Because Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, they were all passionate relationship to God. They were all emotional relationships to God. Abraham out of love, Isaac out of fear, Jacob out of both, synthesis of the two of them. None of them ever had a rational approach to godliness. It was all an emotional approach to godliness. And in emotions, there are no questions. I love you and I do whatever you take. I'm afraid of you, I'll do whatever you say. In emotions, there is no room for doubt, no room for questions. So therefore, not by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or any of the forefathers, was there any questions. Because they were emotionally in a trance with God. Think about it. When a person's emotionally connected to somebody, when they're in love with a person, they can be the biggest criminal. And you say, how do you love this guy? Because when a person's in love, when there's an emotional connection, they don't ask any questions. The same way that when we're emotionally in love with ourselves, we also don't ask questions about our behavior. You know, one of the things it says, when you love your fellow as yourself, what does it mean, love your fellow as yourself? How can you love somebody else as yourself? The Bashemta once explained that the same way you make a bunch of excuses for yourself, whenever you do something wrong, make those same excuses for somebody else. Right? So whenever all the excuses you have, because you never have questions, because you're emotionally in love with yourself. So the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were emotionally in love with God. They never had any questions. It was a passionate relationship. Who was the first person have an intellectual relationship with God, Moshe. For that reason, Moshe is not called Moshe our father, he's called Moshe Rabbeinu, our teacher. He was the one that had to teach the Jewish people. And if I want to teach the Jewish people something, I have to have a relationship which is intellectual. I have to be able to give them something, an intellectual relationship. Intellect means that they ask questions. Intellect means that they have the ability to ask questions. You know, what was the difference between governments today and the way the world was run a thousand years ago? A thousand years ago was dictatorship. You don't like it, tough luck, and they kill you. <laughs> today, there's a democracy. But what happens with a democracy? All of a sudden, you have to have 
uh, what's it called, a press secretary, and then there has to be a minister of understanding, and a this and a that, and all the different of all, all the different memorandums that they have to give out. And each person advises to their president and to the vice president to say if he said his words backwards, they have to say it forwards. All the different. Why? Because it's democracy. They realize they say something that's incorrect, that the people don't like tomorrow, they're out. Moshe tells the God, until the giving of the Torah, the Jewish people had this emotional relationship. Emotional relationship is the no questions asked. It's a dictation. You like it, good. You don't like it, you don't love. See, you love, you don't. But the moment the Torah is given, the Moshe comes into the equation. Moshe asks questions. Moshe asks questions, but look at his questions. Did his questions stop him from doing what he was told to do? No. His que- Where did Moshe go wrong? When Moshe said, well, the Jewish people are suffering, so therefore, I shouldn't be the one to take them out. That's where God said, no, you made a mistake. But he, he, they have a problem with asking a question? Absolutely not. Questions we can ask. But doubts don't have. There's a fascinating story told about a young child named Elchanan Kona, lived in a uh, more of a Lithuanian type of school in New Jersey, Yeshiva, went to Yeshiva, New Jersey. The story goes back 40 years ago. When he was a young kid, the Elchanan Kona went to school on his first day of Yeshiva, and his teacher taught him, in the beginning God created heaven and earth. He comes home, he has to review, he has homework, he's learning with his mother, the Chumash, and he says, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and he turns to his mother and says, but who created God? So his mother said, hmm, got me there, good question. Why didn't you ask your teacher the question? He comes back the next day to school, raises his hand in class and says, teacher, I got a question. Who created God? Teacher looks at him and says, what? How dare you ask such a question? Are you a heretic? How, who told you to ask such questions? He says, my mother, I asked the question to my mother. She didn't know the answer, so she sent me to you to ask the question. We don't ask such questions. I gave him a whole lecture for about a half hour. How dare he ask such questions? Comes home, tells his mother what kind of parsha he got, you know, what kind of blessing he got from his teacher for asking the question. His mother said, you know what? Who's the best person to ask this question to? We're going to send a letter to the Rebbe and ask the Rebbe this question. And he wrote a letter to the Rebbe saying, I learned today in class, Bereshus Baralikim, who created God? A few days went by, and the boy got an answer from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe answered him in English, an English letter. And the Rebbe answered him, three, and answered him as follows. He says, I received your, your, your letter that you asked. You want to know more about God? And he says, three at points, the Rebbe says. Number one, the desire to know more about God is beautiful and is wonderful and is worthy of praise because even King David told his son Solomon, you should know God, your forefathers, your God, your father. you believe of Shalom and serve him with a whole heart. Number two, the Rebbe told him, for everything there's a time and place. Meanwhile, you're just young, you're just learning to study. It's best that you first energize yourself and fulfill doing the mitzvahs, and then you will learn more. And then, as you get older, you will talk to your teacher, or to your rabbi in your community, and you'll ask him your questions and be able to explain it to you. And number three, the rabbi explains to him, and he says the reason for this is, as you know, when the Jewish people got the Torah, they first started Nasa, that they're first going to do the commandments, and only once they're doing it, only then do we have nishma, do we listen, do we start articulating and learning more about what, when, where, and how. What was the Rebbe telling this child? The Rebbe was giving this child and a lesson for all of us, very important. If we think we're going to have the answers to everything right away, they lost the boat. And God told us to Moses also. Very good questions you have. But recognize that what you're seeing is one floor of an infinite building. The elevator doesn't even reach that high. And you think you can understand how the whole building's built and how the foundation's made and where the construction's going to? What you're seeing is one little part and speck in the picture. Not everything are you going to understand. Things may take a lifetime to understand. May take a century to understand. And you want to understand it right now. So know number one, when you have a question, not always are you going to see the answer right away. You know, they say a story, a guy walks into a shul and he sees that the uh, guy is giving out the Torah readings of the, the Aliyahs. He gives that guy in the right, and that guy in the left, and that guy in the center, and that guy in the back, seemingly a haphazardly way. And he says, what's going on over here? What's this guy doing? 
Afterwards, he walks over to the guy that was giving out the aliyahs. He says, well, that guy had his birthday tomorrow. This guy has a yard set. Everything had a reason. Everything that happens in this world has a reason. God is orchestrating everything from above. If we think that us and our little puny finite minds are going to understand everything that God does, you're making a mistake. And Molly comes along and says, hey, how come I don't understand? You have to eradicate that Amalek and say, I'm not going to, I'm not here to understand. I can ask questions, but I'm not here going to understand. I need to do. I need to know how. I'm not about the ifs. I'm about the hows. Amalek tries to install within the individual and telling you, oh, what's going on over here? And over here, the Rebbe was telling this young child, number one, it's beautiful to ask questions about God. But number two, and not only knows it's beautiful to ask questions, there are even answers to your questions. But not everything are you going to get the answer right away. Not in one sitting do you think you'll have it all fixed out and all works out. Maybe not even in one lifetime will you know what it is. And how do you get to know what the answer is? By doing. The more you do, the more you'll see the answer in your life. It's a fascinating story. I said it once before. But there's a story in the 70s. There was a student who once came into the Rebbe for Yechidus. He was a student came from a very fancy Ivy League college from Harvard, I think it was. And he came into the Rebbe with a whole list of about 45 questions about faith. And he wanted to like interview the Rebbe, ask the Rebbe questions about faith, Judaism, all those questions he had, and God, and all the wonderful things. And he sits down in front of the Rebbe and tells the Rebbe, I want to ask you all these questions. So the Rebbe tells him that it's already 1.30 in the morning, there's still another 100 people that have to come in today. It wouldn't be fair for me to answer you all these questions at once. Why don't you enroll in the yeshiva, down the block, which was the yeshiva of the Torah at the time. He says, after you roll in the yeshiva, you're there for two, three months, you'll come back again with a list of questions, and we'll see what we can do when there's maybe less people, we can go through some of the questions. Fear, sounds like fear game. So, he went to the yeshiva, he studied for three months, and he came back again to the Rebbe for Yechidus to his private audience. And he spoke about completely something, a different subject. So the Rebbe turns to him and says, do you have a paper with 40 questions? So he says, I no longer have any questions. <laughs> What's the bottom line? If we learn and we appreciate and we understand, all our questions dissipate on their own. The reason why we have questions is because we haven't learned, we haven't trained ourselves. When Amalek tries to get us and to freeze us in our action and say, oh, but what if I can't do it? That's Amalek. And that, the Torah says, we have to eradicate from anything. We have to remember, we have to travel forward. We have to go towards that Mount Sinai. Where were the Jewish people going to? They were going towards Mount Sinai. We were going towards Mount Sinai. And when we go towards Mount Sinai, we know that the Torah is going to be given a mullet automatically falls to the side. If you think about the story also, what was happening? Moshe was standing there, and the Jewish people were holding his hands, uh, Aaron was holding his hands on one side, and Hur on the other side. And it said, as the Jewish people looked to heaven, they won the war. But if they looked towards their enemies, they would lose. Because what was the war all about? The war wasn't just a physical war. The war was Moshe telling the Jewish people, it is not our own energy that makes us win the war. The fact that we're fighting Amalek now is because Amalek is trying to instill doubt. Remember there's Mount Sinai. Remember there's a Torah. Remember you're connected to God. The questions we all have. Doubts we got to get rid of. Hmm.